I want to start tonight by telling you about a few of my friends. I've got one friend who is actually nearing 30, and she's still not married. She started dating her senior year of high school, and at that point, she tells me that she felt a little bit behind, like most of her friends already started dating people, but she was just thrilled that someone finally noticed her. And like most high school relationships, spoiler alert, they don't last. And so that one didn't work out. And after that, for nearly 10 years, she didn't even get asked on a date. None. Radio silence. And after that, she went on a few dates, but nothing really worked out. And she tells me that as she's getting closer to 30, that she feels pretty overlooked, pretty unnoticed, and pretty unseen. I've got another friend who grew up in a really dysfunctional family. She tells me that every Christmas when they'd send out cards or post the family picture on social media, people always comment and say, wow, what a perfect family. It must be so awesome to be in your family. What a great, perfect, beautiful family. And all the while, there's been some pretty horrific things happening to my friend behind the scenes. And as she grew up, she says that in this abusive situation, there's this horrible cycle of don't ask, don't tell, brush it under the rug. And her greatest frustration comes from the point that there's this perception that is so far from reality. And because of that, because of that disconnect, she feels pretty unknown and she feels pretty unseen. I've got a third friend who, since we graduated college, she's had some really great jobs. She has been asked to serve in a lot of leadership positions in these jobs, and, and now with her job, she gets to mentor people. So day in, day out, she's in relationships with people. She's surrounded by people all the time. And she tells me that the great irony with leadership is that you're visible to so many, but you're not truly seen. So she's surrounded by people, but not truly known and feels pretty unseen. I'm going to tell you one more thing about these three friends, and it's this. It's actually, they're not three different friends. It's, it's one person. They're not three different stories. It's one story, and it's my story. Those aren't three friends. It's me. I'm the girl who's nearing 30, and I don't know if I'll ever get married. I'm the girl that grew up in a really, really dysfunctional family, and I don't know if there's ever going to be justice or reconciliation. I'm the girl that actually works here at the Crossing in high school ministry, and I'm surrounded by people every day. I'm in relationships with people, but all of that doesn't necessarily make me feel seen. There are a lot of days I feel really unseen. As I reflected on my life, I look back, and, and when I think about it, there's actually, there's actually been one person who's seen me this whole time, and it's God. Of course it's God. God hasn't been unaware. God hasn't missed anything. God hasn't been aloof. God's been acutely aware. God's actually been near, the Bible tells me. And God's actually working all of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for good. God has actually seen me, and God has seen you. You in the midst of your parents' divorce. You, after you failed that class last semester and you're kind of questioning if you're even in the right major. You, as you're working that internship that you actually hate and the tasks are mundane and, and you wonder, should I just rethink my whole future? You, after the breakup. God sees you after that scary diagnosis. 
God sees you and he's working all of it together for good because he's good. He hasn't missed it. God hasn't been busy and unaware. No, God has seen you. You know, the first time in the Bible that somebody gives God a name, they give him the name the God who sees me. And you and I would think, oh, it's probably like, that name was probably given by someone we recognize, like Moses, right? No, it wasn't Moses. Oh, okay, like um, Abraham. No, Abraham didn't name God first. Oh, uh, King David. No, it wasn't King David. Adam or Eve? No, it was a woman named Hagar. Hagar. Some of you just heard her name for the first time. She's kind of the least likely person to give God a name in the Bible. Why? Well, she was Abraham and Sarah's female Egyptian slave. In this culture, that's like the lowest of the low, female Egyptian slave. But God sees what the culture doesn't see, and he saw Hagar, and they had an interaction in the wilderness of all places. And after that, she gives him the name, the God who sees me. And I think you and I can learn a lot from her story. I think we can be encouraged. I think we can be challenged by it. And so that's where we're going to be tonight. If you have your Bibles, flip to Genesis chapter 16. If not, it'll be on the slide behind me. Genesis 16. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. I'm sorry, time out? What is going on? There's so much going on in these first two verses, right? First of all, God's chosen couple to be the father of his people, they have a slave? I'm sorry, that's offensive, right? We should be offended by that. They have a slave. Does God condone slavery? There's so much I could say here, but I want to say a few things to help us out. One, we have to understand that in Old Testament narratives, in Old Testament stories, the Bible does one of two things. Sometimes it just describes what is. This is the way it was. But sometimes it adds some moral commentary and it says, this is the way it should have been, or this is the way it should be. And it's good for us to know in this situation, the author of Genesis 16 is just describing. It's not prescribing. God's not telling his people to have slaves. But should Sarai have had a slave? Well, no, it's really clear and earlier in Genesis that, that slavery actually breaks God's heart. It goes against his good design of male and female being created equal in his image. That means that every human being has worth and dignity because their creator is God. So yeah, slavery is against God's good design and it breaks his heart. But Sarah, I just went along with the culture, kind of like you and I do. Sometimes we we just do what our culture is doing. We're just swept along with the cultural current. But God is patient with us still and is still at work in the situation, regardless of the fact that his people were disobedient in this area. Okay, God, we got that slavery question out of the way. What about this whole thing where Abram is sleeping with the slave and somehow that counts for children? I don't know about you, but that sounds like it's just going to cause more drama. Like the situation already seems a little bit tense. This seems like so dramatic. Also, like, why is this the last resort? Like, couldn't you have tried, I don't know, all these other things? Well, a couple things we have to know about this culture and this time. Children were everything. You and I know that 
children are a blessing from God, and we might even have family or friends or even our own parents that, that struggled with infertility, and we know, yeah, children are a big deal, and not everybody can easily get pregnant. But in this time, a woman's worth was directly tied to her ability to bear children. Sarai's identity would have been wrapped up in this. And earlier in Genesis, God had appeared to Abram and Sarai and promised them that they would have children. He promised, you're going to have so many descendants, you can't even count them. They're going to be more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. But time is ticking, and Sarai's biological clock is ticking, and she's getting a little nervous, right? She's getting a little impatient, and her, and her identity is being threatened. So they take matters into their own hands, but why, <laughs> why this? Like, why, why give your slave to your husband? Like, why would their children count? We think that's weird. We should think that's weird, right? Why would this count? Why would the descendants that Abram and Hagar has count? Again, this was a cultural practice. In the ancient Near East, when a couple couldn't have kids, you would give your slave to your husband as a concubine. And somehow, in this culture, that would count. The children they had would count as your descendants. So they take matters into their own hands. Abram sleeps with the slave. And let's see if this strategy works. Let's pick it up in verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Woof. What a, what a mess, right? Like, this is a hot mess of sin. A tangled web of conflict and sin. Abram didn't trust God himself, so when his wife suggested that they take matters in their own hands and introduce a concubine, he didn't stop it. Abram was a little passive and and could have stopped his wife when she suggested this, that he take a second wife, that clearly would have gone against God's definition of marriage. Sarai mistreated her slave so much so it causes this incredible relational conflict that the slave takes off and runs. But that's what sin always does, doesn't it? Like it's never, it's never the solution that solves all your problems. No, sin actually always complicates things, doesn't it? Sin always promises more than it can deliver, and it promises happiness, and it promises a solution, but it, but it leaves destruction behind you. And sin never affects just you, right? Even sin done in secret, it never affects just you. It affects everyone around you. That's what sin does, and it causes us to run, and, and Hagar ran. She took off, and let's see where she landed. Reading in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much 
they will be too numerous to count. So the Bible tells us it includes this detail that seems arbitrary, that Hagar stops by this spring that's next to Shur. Why is that important? Well, if we looked on a map, we would see that Shur is a region that's right next to Egypt. Where's Hagar going? She's going back to her home. And she's run pretty far. She's going back to her homeland where maybe she would be seen. Maybe she wouldn't be a slave. Maybe her status would be elevated there. A place where she knew she was running and she was trying to head home. And then God appears to her. And the Bible describes it. I don't know if you caught it in verse 7. It says the angel of the Lord. Interesting. So was this God or was this an angel that appeared? Well, this is a really common phrase that the Old Testament uses to describe God's messengers or God sending a messenger proclaiming his message of truth and grace, giving his word. And some scholars think, I think this is fascinating, some scholars think that this angel of the Lord talking to Hagar could have been Jesus. That seems random. I thought Jesus wasn't born until like later in the New Testament. No, this could have been Jesus. How do I know that? Well, the Bible is clear that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has eternally existed. It's not like there was a father for a little bit and then Jesus came on the scene and then the Holy Spirit. No, the, the triune God has eternally existed before time. And sometimes in the Old Testament, this messenger, this angel of the Lord would appear in bodily form and give God's word to his people. So this was before Jesus was incarnated, born in human form in the New Testament. So scholars call this the pre-incarnate Christ. Pretty cool to think this literally could have been Jesus talking to Hagar in the wilderness. But regardless, even with all the mystery, this was God's word and, and this was God interacting with Hagar. So what, is, what does this angel of the Lord say to her? He asks a question. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think it's hilarious when God asks questions in the Bible. Because just think about it for a second. Like, okay, God, you're omnipresent. You're everywhere at once. And um, you're omniscient. You know everything. Like, why are you asking questions? It's not like God was traveling to Egypt too and then bumps into Hagar and is like, what are you doing in Shur? Like, what are the odds? No, it's not like God has misplaced her or he missed the memo that Hagar ran away. No, God asks a question because he's not looking for an answer because he knows the answer. But he wants Hagar to answer so she can hear herself. See, God is kind, he's patient, he meets us where we're at, and he lets Hagar verbally process before him. As we read this, our minds might think back to Genesis 1, Genesis 3, actually, when God is walking in the garden and Adam and Eve have just sinned. And God tells Adam and Eve or asks, where are you? Very similar situation because God doesn't misplace us because he sees us and, and he's kind. He wants to hear and he knows, but he wants Hagar to hear her answer. But what is her answer? Hey, Hagar, where are you going and where are you coming from? She says, I'm running. I'm running. I'm running from my mistress, Sarai. And what does God say to her next? No problem, Hagar. I've actually already taken care of that Sarah problem. And I have struck her down with lightning. And so she's not going to be an issue anymore. No, I don't think my version says that. What does God say? Uh, no problem, Hagar. I've actually changed your status, like here in the meantime, as you've been traveling from slave to free. So you're good. You can return back with no worries. 
No, my version doesn't say that either. No, God doesn't actually change her circumstances, does he? Like literally nothing has changed. No, he says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Are you sure, God? That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad back there. God doesn't promise to change her circumstances, but don't you know that after this encounter, she knew that God was with her? With her. No, nothing was changing back home, um, but she knew that God was with her, and I, and I think you know that the same is true for us, right? Like, God doesn't promise to change our circumstances. He doesn't promise, hey, if you pray and trust me, whoo, your life's going to be so easy. All that stuff you're praying about, I'm going to snap my fingers. No, God God doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but he does promise that he's with us. He does promise that he's good. He does promise that he sees, and he does promise that he's near. So after God tells her, go back and submit to your mistress, he gives her a promise. And we should have a little bit of deja vu if we're familiar with the Abraham and Sarah story, because God tells Hagar, I'm going to increase your descendants so much that they're too numerous to count. Weird. That's like almost exactly what he told Abram and Sarai. Huh. So Hagar would totally see this come to fruition in her lifetime, right? Well, no. No, she might see her own child and she might see her children's children, but we don't know. We don't know how many descendants Hagar would have seen. She for sure wouldn't have seen the fruition of this, right? She had to wait. She probably had to wait a long time. And the same is true for you and I. God hasn't promised to change our circumstances, but there might be a period of waiting, and we, we might have to wait a long time, but there's truths that we can cling to in the waiting, and it's that God's near, that he's good, and that he sees. And after this crazy encounter with God, we get a, we get a little glimpse into Hagar's heart. In verse 13, what does she say? Verse 13 says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I've now seen the one who sees me. She's got a name for God. God, you're, you're the one who sees me. And don't you know that that's what she thought about as she's walking back through the wilderness, back to this horrible situation? Like she would have been in even more trouble after being a runaway slave, right? Like it's not gotten any better. If anything, it's gotten worse. But, but don't you know that that was on her mind as she's walking back? God has seen me. I just had an encounter with God, the God who has seen me. And think about her circumstances again. She's alone and pregnant in the desert. She's an ethnic minority. She doesn't speak the language. She was pretty close to being near potential family, maybe. We don't know. But she is not only inferior, but she's at probably the greatest moment of unseenness in her life. And God just showed up. And so, of course, of course the name she picks for God is the God who sees me because he was the only one who did. And, and that's not depressing. That's actually really hopeful, isn't it? that the only one who does see is the one that we should want the most to see, that actually is the most comforting to see, the God of the universe. 
Don't you know that she knew God was with her? Don't you know she never forgot that encounter? Think about that. After her kid was born, after probably some really difficult future encounters with her mistress, on those sleepless nights, on the nights that she cried herself to sleep, she thought about this God who saw her. And she probably took the way she felt and put the truth of who God is next to it and had to cling to the truth. I don't know about you, but I, I have to do that all the time in my life. I'm really forgetful, and my feelings can try to sway what I believe really easily. It's really natural for that to happen. So I have to cling to the truth of who God is, truth that I find like in verse Psalm, Psalm 10, 17. I have to remind myself that God sees and he hears. He's so near that he sees and he hears, and he's going to encourage me, encourage me to trust him more, encourage me to believe that he's good and to persevere. Verses like Psalm 32, 8, that tell me that God's got a loving eye on me and he's going to counsel me. I got to cling to that. I can easily be swept away by my emotions, but I've got to remember, no, there's a God who I can trust and he's got a loving eye on me. That's really good news. As the music team comes back up, I'll just say this. You know, I actually have no idea how my story is going to end. I don't know if I'll ever get married. I don't know if this family dysfunction will ever be fixed. I don't know if there will be days in the future where I feel a little more known in my job. I don't know. But I can tell you this, this story of Hagar has changed the way I think about my circumstances. It really has. And I truly don't worry as much as I used to about my circumstances changing. Sure, if you'd have given me the pen, I would have written my story a lot differently. And I would have taken out the heartache and the waiting and the pain. But I'm oddly grateful that God has, has allowed these circumstances to happen in my life because it's, it's taught me and it's forced me to come to the truth that there's a God who sees me. I'm not unseen. There's a God who sees me and, and God sees you. I don't know if your parents are going to get back together. I don't know if that boy or girl is going to come back around and you'll date again. I don't know if you'll be healed from that scary diagnosis. I don't know. But I do know there's a God who sees you. And he's near. And he's good. And he knows his children's hearts. He knows that we have hearts that are prone to wander and run. Like run to the wilderness because of our sin. But, but he sees us so much that he sent his son Jesus to reconcile us back to God. To rescue us. And bring us home. And and that's a God that I want to remember. That's a God that I want to fix my eyes upon and remind myself that this is who he is. And he's unchanging. Like he's always been the God who has seen and he will continue to see. And he sees you right now and he loves you. And he's good and he can be trusted. You know, I think ultimately that Abram and Sarai didn't really believe that God saw them. So they took matters into their own hands and caused a mess. But I think I want to be a little bit more like Hagar and, and lift my eyes to the one who sees me and let that encourage me and give me hope. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are the God who sees. Thank you that you're good. Thank you, God, that you're faithful and, and unchanging and, and so trustworthy. I pray, God, that if nothing else tonight, we'd believe that one ounce more. I pray that you would 
would build our trust in your unchanging character and in your unfailing love and, and in this really unique aspect of you that, that you see, that you see everything. I pray that that would, would grow our faith in you, that, that this story would grow our love for you and pray that we would be people that cling to this truth of your character. Thank you for these students, God. Thank you for their, their desire to grow and learn and be in community. And I just pray that you be at work in each of their lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.